This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to provide medical advice. It exists only to entertain. In the 1940s, on the battlefields of Europe during World War II, a U.S. Army medic springs into action after hearing a call for help. Medic! What? What? Wait, where are you? Over here! Oh, there you are. What's the matter? Are you hit? I've been poisoned. Help! Really? Oh, okay, okay. Um, let me find the new injector kits. I know it's around here somewhere. Hurry! I'm trying. Hold, hold on now. These things are new. Oh, please help. Ah, here it is. Okay, um... What is it? What's happening? Oh, there are a lot of parts in here. I'm, I'm reading the instructions. Instructions? Man, I need help now. Well, if I, if I do this wrong, you might get the wrong medicine or the wrong dose, so... Ah, uh, just get on with it. Okay, okay. You said you were what now? Oh, I poisoned. I was poisoned. Poisoned, right. Let's, let's go to figure 2C. Oh, man. Nah, hell. What language is this? Where's English? Why would they use multiple languages? Oh, you're telling me. Please hurry. Alright, here it is. Okay, poison. It says to give you the atropine. Alright, go on then. Okay, that's vial B, not A. Let's see where the needle is. Ow! Confound it. Oops. Dropped it. Sorry. Oh, no. Nah, it's fine. It's fine. There, there we go. Nice and clean now. All right, let's have it. Okay, now needle goes on to the syringe, and I stand this little vial. Oof, that was close. This is really stressful with all these moving parts. I feel like time's running out. I'm trying to think here. Okay, have the atropine in the syringe. Let's have you, uh, how about you roll over on your stomach? What? Why? Well, so I can, I can administer this medicine in your gluteus muscle. My what? Really? Oh, that's what the manual says. Here, do you want to read it? No, no, fine. Whatever, I'll, I'll roll over. Well, let's have your pants down a bit. Hurry! Now, wait a minute, what's all this, then? Oh, what's what? Your, 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 your buttocks, you're your covered in a rash. I know, that's why you're here. Well, you said you were poisoned. I was. I was crawling all over this field and I got into some poison ivy. It's miserable. I, I don't think that's rightly what this injection kit was designed for. It says it's for poisoning. No, you need calamine lotion, not atropine. I'd likely be dead by the time you got that whole process down. But it's, it is kind of unwieldy, you're correct. All these moving parts. What if they made something where I could just give myself the injection without needing you? Well, in that case, you would have efficiently given yourself medication that you didn't need. But what if I did need it? <laughs> well, you got me there. Wait, aren't you supposed to inject that into the heart directly? No, no, that's that's a silly, ridiculous movie trope they repeat over and over again. <laughs> oh, it is? No, well, it will be someday. I'm so itchy. Oh, it's good now. Poor historians, poor historians, poor historians. We look at cases throughout history. Welcome, everyone. This is Poor Historians, a podcast delving into the archives of medical history. As three emergency physicians, we will explore the unusual treatments, ailments, physicians, and all related material having to do with the healing arts. I'm Max, and I'm joined here by my good friends and colleagues, Aaron and Mike. Gentlemen, I can't help but notice you haven't clicked like on like every TikTok video I've made for our show to date. Me? Miss a few? I don't have TikTok. It scares me. I need to have the talks imported into my instagram otherwise i don't know how to watch them <laughs> oh my god you boomer <laughs> yeah have instagram though so i'm proud of him for that even better if it goes on the facebooks that's the best way with that yeah that one tiktok about wisconsin took off i don't know how many likes it has now but it was in the 
multiple tens of thousands. Uh, yeah, very surprising. A lot of people very concerned about the health of the cows could care less about the human side of that story. And I get that, actually, quite frankly. But yeah, that, uh, was, that was our best video to date. I uh, was very happy, too, because one person asked me what I put in my mustache. And that's really what I was fishing for. So that's why we do it, folks. All right. But hey, you know, Aaron's disuse of social media aside, we are happy to introduce that we have a guest here with us this week. We are here today with Patrick Kelly. Patrick has a master's in exercise physiology and a pension for teaching medical history as well as anatomy and physiology, all those things that we have long since forgotten. In, he did an internship at the Mutter Museum, writing researching videos for their channel. And you can find a whole bunch of his work on his main YouTube channel, Corporis along with multiple researched and well-produced videos and topics on medical history. And almost one of the best parts, besides being really well-versed in this stuff, he even offered to do most of this week's episode for us, which we love. Patrick, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, guys. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of nice that I get to recycle an old script for content purposes. That is <laughs> yeah, the name of the game, my friend. Efficiency. <laughs> hey, if, we're gonna, if you're going to do it with TikToks, we can do it with YouTube videos crossing over into podcasts. But Patrick did offer to share one of his episodes with us, essentially, and that's going to be the main body of the show today. What are we talking about today, Patrick? Yeah, so I figured we'd talk about the EpiPen for a couple different reasons. One, y'all are emergency docs, and I figure you're pretty well-versed in this, in the uh, technology and the pharmacology behind this thing. It's a stabby needle with a spring. We we can use that technology all day long. <laughs> hey, wait a second, wait a second. I, I thought you said you're from the, the Bay Area, and you just said y'all. <laughs> you're I do, a secret I southerner do. <laughs> secret southerner is i've been doing it so long at this point too um yeah i figured we do the EpiPen. you know it's a relatable device too i feel like you know i'm a high school teacher i get trained on how to use one of these things every year and some of the comments on that EpiPen video are like you know my dad has to use one of these things i've had to use one of these things so it's a relatable thing have you had to use one just curious i have not this is uh, a very cool device and it's a it's a life-saving device it's pretty it's like one of those amazing inventions that was so it, it just it does such a good job when it's used right and even when you use it wrong like you shoot it into your finger which is pretty common believe it or not uh it uh usually bad things don't happen so yeah and to that end i actually tried to find like some kind of number like is there a stat or is there any kind of research like how many lives have EpiPens saved and the best I could find was a, a Forbes article from 2016 saying like maybe 780 lives from food allergies, which not nothing. No, no, no. Oh, no, it's huge. No, it's got to be way more than effect. that, though. Yeah, I would bet it is. But it's just underreported. A lot of people probably use it and don't. You're supposed to come in right away just in case you need it again. But yeah, I, it's it's hugely powerful. Well, yep. bee stings for sure. Yeah, if you throw in all of them, say millions, potentially even billions of lives. <laughs> Billion, okay. Billions. <laughs> Cite your source. Uh, Wikipedia. Attaboy. So I figure what we could do is this story is super interesting because it, it goes over about 75 years and it follows almost just like a perfect three-act story. We got to learn about how scientists found out that anaphylaxis was a thing, how they discovered epinephrine might be a good solution for that, and then the technology for getting it into your body. So are y'all ready? Mm to review your immunology. Yeah, I'm going to tap in Aaron on this one. Uh, yeah, I feel like yeah, I'm oh, so ready. Yeah, so ready. <laughs> a little queasy feeling. I'm kind of shaky, so go for it. That that means well, I'm in peak learning news. mode. <laughs> the good news is that you're going to be kind of following along with the people who are learning it in real time. So I need to take you back to the late 1800s. Back then, you had a couple scientists that were making successful back vaccines, and germ theory was like starting to become the norm over in Europe. The U.S. was a few years behind, but this is at a time when our understanding of the immune system was almost non-existent. We had working vaccines before we knew how they worked. So going into the 1880s and 90s, there were a few publications that came out, and that became the basis for our modern understanding of immunology. Was it Time Magazine, The New Yorker? Uh, I think it's actually The National Enquirer. Okay. That's, uh, <laughs> it is actually where I got most of my medical education. <laughs> Somewhere out there, my immunology professor, if he is listening to this, is cringing. He has no idea who you are, Max. You are just a, a faceless <laughs> number. He, in fairness, that's probably true. But he, I, I was best friends with a gentleman in medical school, and I still am, 
who once you meet him, you never forget. And he had a real penchant for immunology and histology, you know, study of slides and cells and all that sort of thing. And so uh, my immunology professor will never forget him. And I was adjacent to him. So he might remember me. <laughs> I was next to the good student. That's great. <laughs> I didn't say he was a good student. Uh, okay. All right. But he, he was a memorable. I'm sure, Patrick, you have memorable students that there. may not be good students. I think oh, you know, over your high school, yeah, it's they're still lovable. It's just, they just make an impression. So the first of these books was actually published in 1883 by a scientist named Ellie Mechnikov. What he did, he took these starfish larvae, which I have no idea what those look like, but he looked mm. at them under a microscope. He poked them with rose thorns because I guess like needles wouldn't do. And then just watch <laughs> what happens. Right, you work that's with what not, you look, he's not a scientist. That's a little, that's what he did as a little kid. And he, was, he just kept doing it. There's it no way. In. It puts the rose thorns in the basket. <laughs> it's, it's like an 80s pop song. Oh, no, that's really weird. Okay. Anyway, now, go ahead. And then he eventually became a sociopath. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is that's kind of behavior. But what he ended up noticing is that, like, under the microscope, he's got a bunch of these cells that rush to the scene of the injury and then just, like, gobble up anything that they see, whether it is good things, nutrients, or whether they're foreign microbes. And these cells he calls phagocytes. Phage meaning eat, sight for cell. So we got some good etymology there. And and one of my favorite aspects of the immune system, this is actually why tattoos stay put. This was like one of those things that I learned in medical school and it like replaced a childhood memory, but I never forgot the fact because it's fascinating. So you're, you get the tattoo, they shoot the ink under the skin and the cells, the part of your immune system, the main cell that does the, the phagocytosis type thing is called a macrophage and they go and they grab all the ink particles and they hold them inside they can't really digest them or break them down they just come and they engulf them and they just sit there and then when that macrophage eventually dies because they don't last forever all the other ones grab the ink particles and they just sit in the same spot so that's why tattoos stay around if you expose your skin over and over again to like high UV in sunlight, it breaks the ink particles apart, and that's why they can fade or blur over time. But you have your immune system to thank for why your tattoos stay put. Hmm, super cool. Oh, thanks. It's a macrophage <laughs> graveyard. No mm-hmm. tattoo. No tattoos are the new tattoos. Uh, that's what I always say. <laughs> I wish the listeners could see me stare at Mike most of the time. We're not even letting our guests talk, please, Patrick. No, it's ahead. really, it's a special connection you two have. I, I love just <laughs> observing it. I also got to say, the immune system, some of the best cell names in the entire body, like you take macrophage, just big eating, big eater boy. Mm-hmm. Same thing. Like that also got natural killer cells. Mm-hmm. Immunology is awesome, man. They do have the best names. So, all right. So Mechnikov is looking at this little starfish larvae. He's got this idea. We got these big eating cells. And this lays the foundation for innate immunity. I always thought of the innate immunity as the cells that are just there. They're already good at attacking things like your bacteria, your protozoa, your your your, your very old timey um, assailants on the immune system. And I think we'll talk about it later. But there's like another half of your immune system, which kind of learns and adapts to new threats. Yeah, and you're actually, you're kind of beating me to the punch here because while we know this with the hindsight 2022, uh, the big challenge for Mechnikov and the immunologists of of yore were that like, they still didn't know how vaccines work. They still didn't know how someone could become immune to a disease that they had already had. So the, what we think of as like the adaptive immune system, they just, they had no idea where that was coming from. That would come from the next set of researchers. So this is all happening like within a 10 to 15 year time period. So to answer that question, we would have to go over to Berlin. Over there, there was this research team of Bering and Shiba Saburo, and they were working with animal serum. This would become this whole process of like vaccines and treatments before antibiotics, before we got more advanced vaccine technology. They noticed that they could take the serum from an animal infected with a disease. Like, and they were, they were pretty fond of like using diphtheria and tetanus. And then they could take that blood out and that could be used as an antibacterial against that specific disease when you then gave it to other animals. Yeah, and I, I actually, I didn't realize this, but the this used to be in the age before antibiotics. You're right, that that's how they treated. I found an article from the early 20th century and I, I did a post about it earlier in the year. But when you had pneumonia, if you, what they would do is they would find somebody who had already survived bacterial pneumonia and they would take the serum, so take the blood out and spin it down and take the 
the the liquid portion, which does contain a lot of your white blood cells and your immune cells, and they would give it to somebody who had active pneumonia. And it mm. kind of it, it wasn't as good as antibiotics, but it was better than nothing. And there's it kind of works. It's amazing to me how often they just injected stuff from one person or being into another one, and that was right. what they did. Just you know, because I mean, we would never do this today. It's got to be. Well, he could have down and cleaned and cross matched yeah. and checked and, you know, filtered. Boring. <laughs> it's amazing. I know. <laughs> yeah, very boring. Yeah. So then eventually they started doing human trials, but they noticed that if you gave someone this new serum from a previously infected animal, the human would have a more mild course of the disease. So they're seeing what happened with the animals translating to humans pretty well. This became known as serum therapy, and it was this huge breakthrough. It earned Baring the first Nobel Prize in 1901. I'm still not sure why the Japanese scientists didn't get included in that one. Oh, I think we can speculate, but yeah, I I didn't really. This is the first Nobel Prize. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, I didn't know that. That's awesome. I thought he got it for naming that strait between Alaska and Russia. <laughs> I was trying to work that in. <laughs> That's his cousin, Johan. <laughs> is it really? No, I'm making stuff up. <laughs> no, you had us, though, man. He's got punked. <laughs> yeah, I deserve it. <laughs> so then, you guys have all heard of Paul Ehrlich, yes? Uh, Ehrlichosis, maybe? You might be making that up, and I don't know. No, it's I, actual I don't know disease. if I can trust that's you anymore. A, yeah, it must be. It's, it's a tick-borne illness, illness Ehrlichosis. Um, that's, my best, uh, that's my best guess. Hmm. I, I assume it's... I, I mean... Scientists at this time loved their uh, loved their eponyms, so I have no mm-hmm. doubt that he was involved somehow. Because he was just like this giant of a German scientist. Maybe physically, I don't know, but certainly academically and in terms of scholarship, this guy was a, a well-known person. He took this idea of like, all right, why is this happening? He proposed the idea of the side chain, the, the antigens and antibodies that we think of today, uh, and proposed it looked like a lock and key. And that became the basis for how adaptive immunity might work. Your body is exposed to an antigen and it makes antibodies to fight them during future exposures. And I will say too, we're looking at, uh, and we'll, we're going to link all this in the future, but uh, Patrick has a really good video on this. In fact, talking about the EpiPad and how it works. And yeah, so when we're talking about antigens and antibodies and side chains, basically, uh, Aaron has a very eloquent way of putting this. Uh, Aaron, how, what, what did you say before the recording? Uh, You're how putting did you... them on blast. <laughs> Boo nerds. Yeah, no, I just said uh, one of them's a sticky outy thing and the other's a Y thing that floats around and grabs a sticky outy thing. And if you have too many sticky outy things, then the Y things get really mad and they attack you. That and nailed it. <laughs> that's exactly. Summary. Yep. how do you nominate someone for the nobel prize because i feel like i want to after that description (laughs) i think you fill out a form yeah is it online online now i've worked a lot of shifts in a row and i'm a simple man i guess you know (laughs) and i like to prey upon weakness well here you go i present academic weakness for your assault (laughs) wait why are you bending over (laughs) <laughs> too much god these Bless. are the things i cut out too patrick so to summarize it's late 1800s and we understand at this point that there are two sides of the immune system innate immunity like we saw with phagocytes and adaptive immunity that you could get from exposure to previous infections yes and by adaptive too that's the side of the immune system that recognizes something as a threat and then can tip off later developing white blood cells to say, hey, if you see this thing again, let's let's get it. Um, and so that's kind of a lot of your viral defense. And uh, well, you're going to go into the allergens. Mm-hmm. So there's this big mystery still. One of the developments was around 1898, this French physiologist, and we got to say it, he was a eugenicist, this guy mm-hmm. named Charles Richet, he noticed that with vaccines, you could expose someone to a germ or a toxin, and their second exposure would be fine since they developed immunity fine. But what Roche noticed was that in rabbits and dogs, sometimes you'd expose that animal to a toxin and their second exposure would be worse than before. He noticed something similar in humans who had received the diphtheria toxin, right? This was the way that they did the diphtheria vaccine because it was while diphtheria is a bacteria, the way that it exerts its harm is through its toxin. And at that point we had uh, at least some practice with it. And we do have an episode on that too. I will let our listeners know. I don't remember which one it was, but around the 20s 20 something as the you told the the balto story in there right yes yeah it was the other dog what was the other dog that was like actually probably way cooler 
but didn't get the movie. <laughs> Nobody no, remembers. That, that is... Even though that was like the crux of the show is that we have to remember that dog. <laughs> Aaron. <laughs> Aaron, who wrote the episode. You guys have all confused me. I don't remember now, which because I, I thought Balto was the There was another dog? To... What the hell? <laughs> there were two dogs? <laughs> there was the other dog. You were like pro-team other dog. <laughs> oh, man. I'm just pro-team. I don't Aaron. know, man. It, it's man. it's early. We'll, we'll, we'll let him off the hook. Yeah, for me, it okay. is. Do like, you guys remember who lost the Super Bowl last year? Uh, exactly. I, the Ravens. <laughs> I know. I know who won it. Aaron would probably know more. Like who lost the the Chelsea championship? I don't know what the soccer thing is. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the Chelsea championship. Now. Chelsea got knocked out of the quarterfinals of the Champions League last year. The Real Champions League. Yeah. yeah. Speaking yeah. his language. Yeah, and it was Manchester City lost Champions League last year. <laughs> there you go, suckers. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, uh, no, who who did lose the Super Bowl last year? I have no idea. No, nice. again, it's just it's the point of like nobody remembers second place. That was oh, well done. Nice Look at you. Oh man, you got yeah, you got yeah. I feel tall. It's almost like I've rehearsed these with fourteen year olds before. Oh yeah, that's actually <laughs> really good. You're either first or you're last. <laughs> oh man, second to first. Grubs, open up textbook to page thirty four and shut the hell up. <laughs> What Rache didn't know was that at the time, these animals and eventually these humans were developing hypersensitivity to the serum or what we might call allergies today. Yeah. And it, there's a couple of different ways this can happen without getting too deep into those weeds. Four, four um, ways. Four. There are yeah, four there's ways. four. I remember there's four. I, one of them takes a while to develop. The other one's pretty immediate. There's the two in the middle. I don't remember mm -hmm. all of it. Hmm. There was a time I did, though. I type, type one is the bad one. It's the more immediate one, if I remember. I well, right, the my... one that kills you with shock. That's type one, <laughs> right? Well, actually, yeah, a lot bad, of them right? can kill you. So type one is the anaphylaxis, I believe. Type four is like the, my belt gave me an itchy spot. That's the nickel <laughs> you the, one. You get right? the arthritis reaction. I don't remember which one that is. You get the painful joints and get horse serum. It's all in there somewhere. I think horse serum is That's four. three. Three, four? Well, I don't know. I got my... Quick textbook somebody, over there. It's the only one that Google doesn't it. have a crease in you it. You do not have your immunology <laughs> test. Yeah. That's a lie. I don't think I ever you opened it. it. I'll, do you want me to get it? I'll get it. No, no you, you'll probably knock the pop filter off again. <laughs> anyway. Man, yeah, regardless of what of what type of allergies we're talking about, they can be bad. <laughs> I think is what we're is what yeah, we're getting at. Absolutely. So Rache's got this. He's kind of like tucking it back in his brain. He's not really doing anything with it yet. But one day. Rache got a call or a tele, whatever, whatever technology they had back in the 1900s. He got a call from the Prince of Monaco, who was having a problem. He was hmm. hearing more reports of the Portuguese man of war stinging beachgoers in the south of France. That was cutting into his tourism revenue. So he figured, I got to do something about it. He had heard of Rache. So he invited Rache on a yacht trip to the African coast. They were going to go study the man of war and just figure out what to do. I've included a picture of the yacht. So y'all can see it right there. Can, uh, can you guys describe what you're seeing in that picture? The thing is huge. It's fancy. It's, it's, it's big. It's a big ship. It's embroidery uh, on the front. I'm not a ship person. There's embroidery. Yes. <laughs> it's got a doily across the bow. No, you made it in the 1800s when you got an embroidered ship. <laughs> Didn't float. It's the mermaid well. on the front with the embroidered hair. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But yeah, this is this is not a tiny vessel like they were throwing some real dollars at this thing. Like I'm trying to imagine if I got to do that kind of research and hang out on that boat for a couple months. I mean, I would sign up for it immediately. I mean, you just get to yeah, the cruise alone. Mm. Yeah, it is a, it's a good looking boat. I got to give you that. Mm -hmm. So they're on this trip and it was it was successful for Rache. I don't know if they ever figured out the uh, the man of war thing, but Rache was into it. He collected some of the the man of war. I want to say jellyfish because that's what they look like to me, but I know they're a different thing. Yeah, they're yeah. a big glob of goo that floats around with stingy tentacles. Exactly. That's what it's distinction without a difference. Well, it's from right. the phylum jellyfish a day. <laughs> it is not. I do like the best part about this part of the story is that you can tell the prince is like, hey, can we figure out how to get rid of these? And he's like, these are fascinating. I want to study them. And just you could you could tell they had different goals here. Exactly. Exactly. So we're back on the boat. Rache collects some of the, the toxin from the man of war. He's like, all right, great. I will study this later on. And when he does, he gets back home. He runs some experiments with the dogs and a separate toxin that he had also collected. And he notices the same weird allergic reaction again. 
Some of the dogs had no hypersensitive immune symptoms after the first injection, but some of them developed symptoms after multiple injections. It's kind of like some people have allergies, other people don't have allergies. Exactly. He concluded that exposing the body to one of these substances, whatever it was, and he played around with some other things, albumin was a common one, that sensitized the immune system to that substance, and then following exposures would produce a hypersensitive immune response, again, just in some of these animals. And they named this new response aphylaxis, and later renamed it to anaphylaxis. Phylaxis is just the root word for protection, a meaning none, ana. Anti-projection or anti-protection. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. (laughs) The thing that is supposed to protect you is now attacking you. And that's a pretty fair summary of what is happening in anaphylaxis. I think we can we could probably uh, talk about that a little bit here. I think we should call it Order Sixty (laughs) Sixes. It's a Star Wars thing. I was going to say, I don't get <laughs> the The clones were supposed to protect the Jedi, <laughs> that they turned out that they didn't. They, they had anaphylaxis. Well, I'd cut that out, but we always do Star Wars references, but cut it out, please. Do it now. You cut it out. Ooh, that's a stretch. I get where you're going with it, though. Yeah, no, I know. I get mean, you. No, so, yeah. The clones thought... are like the Y things, and the Jedis are the sticky out things. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the clones yeah, were exactly. supposed to. I mean, I think the overview here is basically what he was observing is that, hey, I take this foreign substance, in that case, the jellyfish uh, toxin, and I unfortunately stab a bunch of dogs and put it into a bunch of dogs. And some of them really react to it and others don't seem to be bothered by it. And when they name it anaphylaxis, I mean, he was right to, to say something within those dogs is reacting to that serum and attacking them. And I, I mean, the, the, the simplest way to put anaphylaxis is your immune system overreacts to a substance that and produces this gigantic response, which can be life-threatening, which I think we're going to go into next. But it, it is life-threatening because in the folks who have a very big reaction, th- essentially their entire immune system is discharging substances that cause dangerous changes in their blood pressure, their breathing, and and those sorts of things. Whereas the next person, just their immune system may not react that way because it's a pretty complicated system. And it's a pretty wide range of severity too, right? Like Mm -hmm. for some, it is deadly. Mm -hmm. For some, it's like, meh, I can survive this. I'll be okay. You're absolutely right. So it's early 1900s. We know that anaphylaxis is a thing, but we don't have any treatments for it. So now that we knew that, in 1900, just separately unrelated, a Japanese-American scientist named Takamini Jokichi isolated epinephrine. Nice when that happens at the right time. Kind of the same thing with vitamin K and warfarin, right? We talked about that. It's nice when they find two things that are related, but independently and at the exact same time. Mm-hmm. I also got to correct myself. Epinephrine? What is going on, Patrick? Epinephrine. <laughs> no, I'll let it go. It Still let it happen again. Oh, man. I'll do my best. So... Epinephrine, I know you guys know this, but for our listeners, epinephrine is a hormone that comes from the adrenal gland, which is why people might know know it by its other name, adrenaline, right? Adrenal, adrenaline. And I I love this because at this point, endocrinology is also in its early years. So scientists are starting to just try epinephrine on everything. And they had some science. (laughs) Exactly. Like, hey, we have a thing that might work. Let's go and what do you want? You want to go ahead and like choose the gender of your baby? Let's try it out. And they did. Like this is one of the things that they tried. <laughs> uh, fun fact does not work uh, for that. How do, how do you know that? You don't know until you try. You're right. Hmm. Science. I love it. Injected yeah. right before conception. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. I mean, it's the two hit some of the other problems. <laughs> Whatever gets you in the mood, right? I'm trying to I'm trying just to put that together physiologically. Just crazy high heart rate, like wide open. They bronchioles. probably assume that Morgy would help you have a boy because you know they just gender stereotyped everybody. That's my guess as to how they thought that might work. But neosinephrine makes boners go away, so you'd think that you'd, <laughs> sure. you'd be physiologically Only when injected difficult. directly into the penis. I, hopefully, they weren't doing yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, Patrick did not say where they were injecting this and in, in, in no? whom they were injecting it. I also want to know, like, what's our window? Because yeah, I don't know how always long that injection is going to get you hyped. That's always my question <laughs> for those clinics that that say they'll fix your your erectile dysfunction with an injection, like, and it's in an office. So I've never understood what how that works. Like, you you go to the office, you get the injection, and you just drive home really fast. I <laughs> I think you have an RV parked uh, parked in the parking lot, <laughs> right? 
I think we should uh, send somebody on an undercover mission and figure this out. Uh -huh. yeah. Undercover. Uh, <laughs> Some of the success that they had with epinephrine was for controlling bleeding. And then as a local anesthetic, when combined with cocaine, this was kind of the heyday of like, all right, cocaine is one of the best things we have as a local anesthetic. So there was some success with things that didn't have to do with anaphylaxis. Cocaine is just still like one of the best things ever. Not that I would know from personal experience, but it it, it is just responsible for so many things in medicine, so many things in art, and so many bad ideas of which one or two out of a thousand were good. Right. Yeah, 1900s guys... doctors and cocaine were basically Scarface just slamming their face into a giant pile and going, what's it do? <laughs> yes, so many things. And that's how Freud became famous. Have you guys done a, a Halstead episode? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm. yeah. Okay. That our, okay. That was our first cocaine based episode. <laughs> I can't <laughs> wait to hear that German accent. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> As they keep on trying epinephrine for all these different things, doctors notice that it could relieve symptoms of allergies and hives, and that hinted that it might have a role in anaphylaxis. One of their ideas was that since low blood pressure causes someone to have the more deadly effects of anaphylaxis, raising your blood pressure could be the life-saving mechanism. So epinephrine works by increasing heart rate and constricting blood vessels, which is also going to raise blood pressure. And that was great news for people who are suffering from anaphylaxis, because while it doesn't fix the underlying problem with your immune system, it could at least buy you some time. And that's absolutely how it works. So the immune reaction, I, one of the big things you hear about is it's just it's histamine. It's way too much histamine, which is that substance that comes from inside the immune cells and then makes you itch. It makes you swell. It makes your blood vessels leak a bit. And so that's in many ways why the blood pressure drops. All these blood vessels are leaking and they're expanded and they're all relaxed at once. And then your blood pressure goes into the toilet and the epinephrine doesn't really treat the immune reaction so much as it mitigates all the all the it clamps down those blood vessels it stops them from leaking it basically opens your airways up it decreases swelling all within seconds of being given and so that gives you time to give the other medications that will treat the allergic reaction and, and combat the histamine. So that was always one of the coolest things. And I'll tell you, one of my favorite diagnoses to treat is anaphylaxis because you can, like, it can get scary. I was saying it can't, but you can, it's one of those things where you just give this magical dose of something and watch somebody turn around in minutes in front of you. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's why it's life-saving, right? The earlier you get it, the earlier you sort of shift the all the receptors back to closer to normal or try to stop that reaction, the, the fewer consequences you get, which, you know, a lot of times patients will come in and they will have taken Benadryl right away, which is also, that'll block the early part of the reaction. So the histamine release is blocked a little bit by Benadryl. So, and then the epi blocks all the consequences of the, the histamine getting released. So it is useful to take Benadryl right away, but yeah, absolutely not a substitute at all. So epi is the best treatment for this but i'm starting to sound like i'm we're, we're a learning podcast and we're not we should get back to <laughs> cocaine and yeah but yeah always always <laughs> yeah i just uh had to this was i saw this in use uh last week yeah saved somebody's life got him yeah. to the got him to the hospital safely way to yeah. stay humble aaron way to stay humble <laughs> no no i didn't do it i you basically didn't walked save in their life said, you ruined their lives. we should give credit to I our not, EMS no. services who oh, no, are man. usually giving the EpiPen, if not the person themselves yeah, and exactly. by the time they show up to the er they're like yeah hey, feel better okay, like, okay, you, look, you look great i'm gonna go write some stuff and scroll through my instagram because oh my god working and you're good <laughs> yeah i do feel like we save very few lives i've in my probably close to 20 year career probably have saved like not just a handful of lives. I've prevented a lot of deaths. <laughs> because of this technology that we're, we're hopefully going to talk about here in a second, though, right? Because, I mean, that's what revolutionized all this in the modern world. Yeah. And I'm actually, I'm genuinely curious, too, like what your, the procedures are after hearing like, hey, somebody had to use an EpiPen today. What, like, now what? 
Well, a lot of times, so they've used the EpiPen and they, uh, you, you just make sure it is usually already given, especially in our area, every paramedic service is different, but they give uh, Benadryl. You usually give a steroid, which is another way to kind of calm down the immune system. And just a little cherry on top, we usually give Pepsid, which is a, you think of it as a stomach medicine, but it also has histamine blocking properties. So you just kind of throw it on top. And for the most part, when you arrive to the ER after your EpiPen was hopefully successful and you're doing a lot better and you've gotten all that other stuff, we just stare at you for the textbook usually says three hours, but most people are bored after about 45 minutes. And the thing about anaphylaxis is it can be nice and chill and you've got it, but it can also rebound on you within 24 hours. It's pretty rare. So you just got to make sure your patient knows, hey, here's what you do if that goes. And, and if they've had one reaction that severe, I make sure I'm prescribing them an EpiPen so that if it happens again, they've got away. And if for anybody listening, we don't give medical advice, but if you are somebody with bad uh, allergies and you're never sure what to do, do I need my EpiPen or not? You can always call paramedics and they can give it to you or help you decide if you need it. Yeah, but it is one of the more boring things when you, it's like you go from one of the most acutely life-threatening conditions to getting to the ER and just sitting there and then leaving. No, but th that's plan A, but let's not, I mean, the, the reason you go to the ER is in case plan B occurs. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, I'm not saying that you, need... you shouldn't go in. I'm saying like, it's it's <laughs> funny how it's so easily, you know, the, the treatments that work, work so quickly and yeah. are so effective yeah. that you don't the have reason... to have, but you need to be observed. Not well, and some, advice. for some folks, I mean, that, that initial dose of epinephrine isn't enough. So, you know, you can need repeat doses of epinephrine, but up into just receiving a drip of adrenaline. And there, in rare cases, people need that. And it, it works, but sometimes you need a, just, you got to be on a drip of it. Um, and those are the really, what word is the right word to use out in public? Not interesting, not fun, not, you know, challenging cases. Medically intriguing. Medically challenging. Challenging <laughs> seems better. Once reaction, yeah, I mean, true shock can develop and then you just need yeah, a lot more epi. Right. But it's and always... It's always yeah. good. You just need just more of it. That's if you get worse, you just need more of it. Yeah. And more complicated is the um, angioedema rather than oh. anaphylaxis. But again, your whole throat and face swells and it's we'll like see really if this fun works. to yeah, right. ways in that. Yeah. Angioedema is where you get swelling around the throat. And a lot of people that have anaphylaxis will describe a throat tightness or a throat itchingness. And some of that might just be you're breathing faster and, and you're anxious, but you never want to overlook the possibility that you're swelling in the throat, which is when people really get sick and potentially die. And still also treated with epi though. Yeah. Still and that's why our, yeah, our threshold for giving epi is really low. If you say my throat feels tickly, you're getting a dose. Yeah, but more or less. And I don't know, Patrick, I don't know if you've ever, you, you probably haven't been in the situation, but there, if you've ever been in a room, like in an emergency room where things are not going as well as you would like to plan, if, <laughs> there is actually a sound where you hear like 10 sphincters tighten at once in the room. <laughs> it's a very incredible sound. It's barely audible, but it, it happens. And if you are treating somebody with anaphylaxis and they have angioedema and their whole face and tongue and lips are all swollen there's a definite puckering sound that you have to make because it, it, it's spicier now and it's not always a fun <laughs> thing. Too spicy. That's funny. The human body has so many sphincters. I'm curious about which 10. <laughs> All of them at once. <laughs> All this. You mostly hear the external one. Well, you got the upper esophageal, lower esophageal, the one that everyone knows about. <laughs> I guess the sphincter two, of Odie. The sphincter of Odie. The two ureteral sphincters. Mm, mm. My favorite, ileocecal. Ooh, nope. nice. Yeah. That's a good one. That. Nice. that is a good one. And if the All listeners right. have any favorite sphincters they'd like to talk about, uh, please send us an email. Tweet us. Poor historian. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I'm so sorry for your future tweets. <laughs> It'd be interesting. Hey, engagement is engagement. I'd be curious what Twitter would do with sphincters. Hmm. I'm kidding. I'm actually not at all curious. I don't really want to know at all. No. At Aaron with your sphincters. No. <laughs> <Ew>. <laughs> N not yours. <laughs> no, no, no. Preferably sourced from Wikipedia. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Let's be responsible here, people. All right. Gentlemen, do you want to hear how we combined epinephrine and immediate, uh, immediate administration? I would. Thank you. Because we have to go to the 1950s. At this point, it's past World War II. We have a pretty good idea of how anaphylaxis works, and we have a treatment option with epinephrine. But the big challenge is that in order to save someone's life, it has to be administered right away, as we saw with that uh, historical documentary at the beginning of the show. <laughs> so you had to, I mean, instead of transporting someone to an ER, it would be way faster for people with known allergies to just have epinephrine on them at all times. The reason for that is like oral tablets didn't work. 
because the enzymes in the stomach broke down the hormone. Mm-hmm. So it seemed like intramuscular inject or intramuscular injections were the best bet since muscle has lots of blood vessels and an intramuscular injection would allow the medicine to spread out, get to where it needs to go all at once. And then it would flow around the body to organs that needed it. Unfortunately, that meant that we'd have to figure out how to get injections into people's thighs or buttocks. It was this last mile problem. We need technology. Mm-hmm. So back then, your best option for self-injection was this little pocket kit developed during World War II. It included an anti-syringe and a vial of epinephrine. Once again, I put it in the the show document, but for listeners, you can see this in in the YouTube video that I made. Yes, and it's, uh, to describe it, I would say it's it looks like it's about Zippo lighter size, maybe a little bit more generous. You cl- you click open the top, and it's it's got like needles and syringes and tiny vials in it, and you, it looks like you just kind of take everything out and assemble it. And uh, can imagine that, uh, especially if you're doing this during battle or what other whatever other stressful as you're, situation, as you're having an anaphylactic reaction. Yeah, and especially <laughs> then it's it probably goes swimmingly. And if, if I'm not mistaken, Patrick, I looked these up, and uh, usually these one the one that you have pictured here, mm-hmm. they carried. Um, uh, morphine and atropine very commonly during World War II. So morphine, obviously, for pain. The atropine, I assume, was probably to combat some of the nerve gas agents that they used mm-hmm. at the time, like organophosphates or whatever. Uh, but you can only imagine you've got these two vials, you're sick, or somebody around you is sick. It's a stressful situation. You can probably get this wrong pretty easily. Mm. Yeah, again, I I have no idea how they would do this on a battlefield with explosions happening everywhere. And sure enough, yeah, it did. It took a lot. It took a long time to assemble. It was prone to user error. It was definitely not ideal for emergency situations. So luckily, the U.S. military was working on something similar during the Cold War. You mentioned that they were worried about nerve gases, the organophosphates, and we had substances to give. We could give atropine as an antidote to the nerve gases. But again, in order for them to be life-saving, they would need to just jam it into their thigh right away. And uh, it, it goes was... it goes into the heart, Patrick. You... I forgot about <laughs> Didn't that. Didn't you see you. the rock? <laughs> right and into the heart. Pulp fiction. It goes right because if you get into the heart. A little, a little circle first. And then... Yeah, you just a little alcohol swab and you want to take a mm-hmm. needle and you want to puncture it into the heart chamber blindly because then it gets into the central circulation so quickly. That is the best way to administer it. It's absolutely not true. <laughs> But every movie has you believe that, and they're all wrong. I don't, I don't know where to go for that. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all wrong. Cool. <laughs> Welcome to Poor Historians React. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh, that'd be great. Okay. So the military had the same problem as people trying to treat their allergies. And so here's what I, here's what I love. Here's the twist. The design that would become the EpiPen didn't come from the military either. It came from a NASA engineer working on the Apollo missions. This was this engineer, an American engineer named Sheldon Kaplan. He came up with a device called the auto injector. This would allow astronauts in zero gravity to give themselves injections of whatever. And that opened the door for all kinds of emergency uses. Kaplan took this design and tweaked it into a device called the combo pen that soldiers could use to give themselves the antidote to nerve gas. You've got some pictures of this, too. Yeah, it's really, man, this is... Looks way better. It looks way better. At this, uh, actually, looks like you a know Sharpie. The just take a Sharpie and just... So we got the combo pen. And then sometime in the 70s, Kaplan redesigned this design for anaphylaxis victims. It just made sense. Like, we have a need. We have a medicine that we want to put into this little pen. And we have patients who need it right away great this is solving the same problem for the military it's solving the same problems for the anaphylaxis victims he did tweak the design a little bit like he still wanted to prioritize durability and convenience but this is what i love the needle also had to be hidden in this case because there's this idea that there's this this scary looking needle that might psych someone out to the point where they don't give themselves the epipen so he concealed the needle behind that little tip and that would that would help people save their own lives they could just put a blunt tip right into their thigh, and then, hey, there's also a needle in there, turns out. You're absolutely right on that, but it's very true, uh, because if you pull out a giant needle and you look at it, it's, you're going to be less likely to use it if that's not something it's, you're comfortable with, right? You know, it's really hard to cause yourself pain. I mean, we're we're designed to keep ourselves well <laughs> and not cause pain. Our brains, mm-hmm. you know, like It's just that. not fun to stab yourself with a needle either. It's easy for me to tell nurses to stab other people because I'm not doing the stabbing nor receiving the stabbing. So, you know, I, I don't really have a hard time with it. I don't know what you guys are complaining yeah, about. Yeah, well, third person stabbing is different. <laughs> third person stabbing is easy. Yeah, I, I think it's totally true. Oh, man, I just propagated the murder basement thing, didn't I? Damn it. 
Hey, Patrick, uh, Aaron has a murder basement because he lives in a really old house. There's like a bunch of meat hooks and we don't don't really go into it much more. And he's a vegan. That's why we can't figure that out. (laughs) (laughs) So to wrap it all up, Kaplan patented the first EpiPen in 1977. He never owned the patent, which means that he never got rich off of it. He just got the satisfaction of knowing that his device saved lots of human lives. Where are those people nowadays? You know what I mean? Like the just altruistic... Yeah, because uh, insulin insulin is the same way. Yeah, right? banting. Yeah, I think he. I think the story is he sold the patent for like one dollar because their big challenge was we just we need somebody to produce insulin. We don't have the resources to ramp up production here. Uh, I think they sold it to University of Toronto and then in America to Eli Lilly. Oops. But yeah, it's, yeah, Damn just it. gave it away. Damn. <laughs> Well, I'm working on a video about this, too. I don't just randomly know this. <laughs> yes, saving human lives is a good thing, in my opinion. What a nice story. Wait, who is that? Oh, that's our sentient computer. Hello, Patrick. I thought that massive technology over there in the corner was the Time Portal. Yeah, it's that, too. Time Portal computer became sentient a couple episodes ago, so now we're kind of dealing with that. Uh, it seems like a headache. I can hear you. At least the computer doesn't hate you. I think it's out to get me. It sounds like Aaron is developing some paranoia. Why don't you guys just, like, turn it off? Uh, it's complicated. I mean, since the time portal slash sentient computer became sentient, it raised some ethical questions about that. Turning me off would be murder. Yeah, something like that. Also, our computer is dating the James Webb telescope, so erasing it would like hurt those it's formed relationships with, and that's just another level of complication. So let me get this straight. You were afraid to turn off or murder your computer because it would make a space telescope sad. More or less, yes. Yeah, I mean, I, for one, feel differently about all of this. I'm glad you get to have feelings, Aaron. Some of us would like to continue existing with feelings of our own. Oh, come on. It's okay, computer. Nobody's turning anybody off. This is a very strange show in many ways. Yeah, you, you get used to it, though. Hey, so why does the computer dislike Aaron? You know, we're not really sure. Dislike would be a feeling. According to Aaron, I'm not allowed to have those. You, you know what? Why don't, why don't you go commiserate with your boyfriend up in, up in space, you know, far away? I'm going to tell Jim how you are treating me and he's not going to like it. That's okay. I can live with a space telescope presenting me too. I don't know if you want to make both advanced technologies angry at you, Aaron. Yeah, no kidding. Have you not seen any science fiction movies like ever? I'm, uh, I'm going to go on record. I'm team pro computer on this one. Thank you, Patrick. You will be spared. <laughs> Mike, we've got to do something about this. I don't know if we can. What did you say over there? All right. Well, let's uh, just uh, get to thinking our uh, special guest, uh, Patrick Kelly, for his very thorough and awesome research on this topic. You can find out more in his video, which we will link on the show notes, and we will link to all of his YouTube channels as well. Patrick, anywhere else you would want our listeners to go to find you? Uh, Instagram would be great. That is at Pat Kelly teaches, P-A-T-K-E-L-L-Y teaches. Awesome. I will have that all linked as well. And uh, fortunately, before the computer jumps back in, I think that is all we have time for today. We appreciate everyone listening. We'd love to hear from all of you out there. If you'd like to send us a message or provide feedback, we can be reached through our website, www.poorhistorianspod.com. There you will find links to all our social media sites. We can take emails at poorhistorianspod at gmail.com, and we do work to respond to all posts on various social media accounts. If you have time, please go and leave us a nice five-star review on iTunes or on whichever platform you choose. I see a few of you have continued to go out and do that, and we really appreciate it. If you would like some Poor Historians merchandise, including t-shirts, mugs, all that sort of thing, go over to our website and check that out. We love getting pictures of all the folks wearing it. It's really get a big kick out of it. And if you're old-fashioned, call us up on a landline telephone. Remember when those were a thing? With that, until next time, Poor Wait Historians Wait a second. Are... I have a funny story about a telephone. Um, <laughs> people don't know how to use those telephones. There was a, apparently a new sitter at the hospital, so somebody that had to sit in a room watching a patient and like, you know, just call if you have any problems and they couldn't use their cell phone. So they put the landline next to them and it's a, you know, push button. So the person picks it up and they look at it and they're like, what do I do with this? They're like, well, you dial the numbers and you put it next up to your ear. They could not figure out how to dial on a landline. This is like a, a 19 year old person.
Well, give them a rotary phone and watch their head explode. Oh my God. Could you imagine? <laughs> I Whenever you get think... mad, your friends that had lots of nines in the number, you'd be like, damn it, I got to call Fred. And it's like nine, one night. And you're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so long. Well, with that, we're going to sign out AMA. Different. His is more like, jowl. yeah, Southern Medic. lawyer from the late are, are so both a soldier and medic southern 50s? for some reason? Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. It's a regiment out of Kentucky. Do you happen to have a mint julep there? <laughs> yeah. No, Over here. I not. <laughs> hey, I've been poisoned. Help. <laughs> oh, those pops. God, Actually, I'm going to hold this that, thing up. <laughs> Which one are you, Dan? Are you going to be I the... I think uh, Mike just volunteered to be the soldier. And Patrick, I, I must point out that these accents are not meant to be uh, good. In any way. It's okay. I'm from. You're, you're not offending me. I'm from you know San Francisco area. Our regional <laughs> accent is IPO. <laughs> hey, Mike, you, you putting that thing on? What are you doing? I'm gonna here? hold. Well, if I'm doing that, maybe when I'm not talking, but if I'm doing this, because it was like great pop, 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 poppy. I'm sorry, I don't know why it won't stay on there. <laughs> Our professionals here, Patrick. Thirty-three episodes in, and he still doesn't know how to use the pop field. Uh, it's good now. You guys good. did that what? What one cake without messing it up. I was like, <laughs> it's like the pitcher. You're all one liner throwing the perfect, <laughs> the perfect game. And you just don't want to say anything. Yeah. But I, I feel really bad about telling you that I wasn't recording. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you got me. I had to not break character when I dropped into Irish there for just a second. I was like, what the hell was that? Our I was not won't even notice. And I was like, where is this going? Like, scroll. I was like, where is this going? Why is it so long? <laughs> so long. God. I was having fun with it. We're ready to, ready to resume? You mm-hmm. go for it. I'll, I'll okay. cut all that out, except for what Great. Mike said. <laughs> just leave all my stuff in. <laughs> we have a pact. They can't take any of my stuff out. <laughs> You know what I'm going to do someday? Sorry to pause one more time. I'm Patrick going is to... Try, he's take... got things to do today, Max. <laughs> Jeez. Hey, I got the whole day ahead of me still. Okay, okay good. I just... Well, not even a day vacation for another, like, weekend. Uh, oh, that's Mike, right. you're the one who's got the... Uh... starts on Monday. Yeah. Oh, is, this is what he wants to do in his vacation is talk to three yucks in Wisconsin. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you're making a point somewhere in there, Max. I, I forget where you... So why don't you... Go ahead. Maybe I don't want to make the point anymore. <laughs> He was just saying that I'm the best doctor in Wisconsin. I was saying, I (laughs) want to make a track. I want to take out every time Aaron and Mike and me like have like weird guttural throat noises that I never would hear in a regular (laughs) conversation. I'm going to take a super track and I'm going to put all those together, auto tune it. And that's going to be the next uh, theme song. A a corn song. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's disturbed, right? Down with the sickness. I, yeah. Mm. Not even yeah. uh, or as much ASMR. as I love metal. I'm just not a new metal guy. <laughs> Patrick, you were talking about metal. Oh, Apologies, yeah. Patrick. <laughs> Let's get into it. Okay. My dog is going to barf behind me. <laughs> oh, that is disgusting, <laughs> Max. Uh, yes. Put that in the episode, please. Uh, I love... uh, nah, he's good. He's good.